James chapter 3, verses 1 through 12. James chapter 3, verses 1 through 12. It says, Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. For we all stumble in many ways, and if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able also to bridle his whole body. If we put bits into the mouths of horses so that they obey us, we guide their whole bodies as well. Look at the ships also. Though they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they are guided by a very small rudder wherever the will of the pilot directs. So also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. How great a forest fire is set ablaze by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and is set on fire by hell. For every kind of beast and bird, of reptile and sea creature can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind, but no human being can tame the tongue. It's a restless evil full of deadly poison. With it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. Does a spring pour forth from the same opening both fresh and salt water? Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives, or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. Now I want us to go back to chapter 3 and look at verse 1 again. Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. We've covered this verse many times in previous studies, so I'm not going to dwell on it tonight. Except to remind you that God is the one who appoints us to our roles in the body, and we should not assume a role that He has not given us. All right, we've talked about the fact that a lot of us uh, nowadays want to become teachers, a lot of us want to expound to others on the Word of God. Uh, let me just say, as much as we are to be witnesses, or as much as we are to share what God has told us to share and, is what he's, and who He's told us to share it to, be real careful of stepping into that role of teacher. Does it, you understand the difference in what we're talking about? Sharing what God's told you to share and being a witness is one thing. Stepping into that role to becoming teacher is a dangerous thing to do. Go with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. I want to kind of remind you of some things that will hopefully kind of lay this foundation a little bit more. Because you're going to see Paul's, sorry I keep saying Paul, James is using this point in chapter 3, verse 1, to really set the stage for where he's going to go talking about our tongues. In, in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, look at verses 4 through 11. It says, Now there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. And there are varieties of service, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities, but it's the same God who empowers them all in everyone. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. For to one is given through the Spirit the utterance of wisdom, to another the utterance of knowledge according to the same Spirit, to another faith by the same Spirit, to another gifts of healing by the one Spirit, to another the working of miracles, to another prophecy, to another the ability to distinguish between spirits, to another the various kinds of tongues, to another the interpretation of tongues. All these are empowered by one and the same Spirit who apportions to each one individually as he wills. And then jump to verse 18. But as it is, God arranged the members or the parts in the body, each one of them, as he chose. If all were a single part, where would the body be? As it is, there's many parts, yet one body. We live in a day-to-day -day which is different from other eras. And let me explain what I mean by this. Years ago, when James and I started preaching 
before the internet. Remember when you used to, used to study before the internet? You would study your Bible and you would read commentaries or uh, you would get, you had to have a library. And by the way, the only way anybody could be in your library is if they were reputable and tested and vetted. Nowadays, with social media and all these things that are out there, everybody's out there expounding. Don't even have to be published. And how are you going to know who's telling you the truth? Because if you do any kind of research on the Internet on things scriptural, there's some wacky stuff out there. And that's why we need the Spirit of God to help us understand at the same time there's going to be some serious judgment coming in days for those who made themselves teachers on the Internet. Don't do that. In John chapter 3, verses, you don't have to turn there, verses 26 and following, uh, these people came to John the Baptist and they said, Hey, hey, John, you know that guy you baptized? Uh, uh, well, everybody's going to him now. And he's baptizing and everybody's going to him. And John's answer was amazing. He said, A man can only receive what he's been given from above. My role was to prepare the way for him. He must decrease, increase, I must decrease. In other words, he says, now that he's come on the scene, my time is coming to an end. Are we willing to take the role that God has for us, even if it's not all we wanted, if we don't get to be the noticeable one? In Romans chapter 12, again, don't turn there because we got so much to cover tonight. Verses 3 through 8, Paul says, I say to you, by the grace given to me, I say to each of you, don't think of yourself more highly than you ought, but each of us with sober judgment in accordance with the measure of faith that we've been assigned. If your gift is this, use it in proportion to your faith. In other words, we shouldn't try to become the most noticeable. And that's, that's actually something that's being taught in churches today. The preachers will say, dream big dreams for God. Try to do great things for God. And all of a sudden, you've got a problem in the church where you've got people all jockeying for position. And you actually see that in the book of Corinthians where Paul's writing to the Corinthian church. And he says, you guys are all fighting over who's the best preacher, Apollos or Paul or Cephas or Jesus. And, and then on top of that, they weren't uh, loving each other when it came to the Lord's Supper. They weren't sharing with each other and all that. And on top of that, they uh, had divisions in many other different ways. And the fact that he had to write to them about their worship services and how everybody wanted to sing the solo and five people wanted to preach and as you're going to see by the end of our time tonight in chapter 3 of James, James lays out what real spiritual maturity looks like. What real spiritual leadership looks like. And let me say something to you. It's not the most flashy person. It's not the most noticeable person. It's not what we've been taught to look for. So go to verses 2 through 6 of James chapter 3. James continues his admonition about wanting to all become teachers to teach on the deeper issue of our tongues and how much power they have and how much damage they do, even though they're so small. Look at verses two through six. He says, for we all stumble in many ways. And if anyone does not stumble in what he says, by the way, has anybody here never stumbled in what they said? I'm about to share with you a story that will illustrate one of the many times I have. And it's from this passage. 
If anyone does not stumble in what he says, he's a perfect man, able to also to bridle his whole body. He says, if we put bits into the mouths of horses so that they obey us, we guide their whole bodies as well. Look at the ships also. Though they're so large and are driven by strong winds, they are guided by a very small rudder wherever the will of the pilot directs. So also the tongue is a small part, yet it boasts of great things. How great a forest, forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our body parts, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and is set on fire by hell. We're going to break these verses down. But whenever I read this passage, I will never, ever read it the same way again because of something that happened to me 30 years ago. Might even be more than 30 years ago. Might be 32. I don't know. But... I was an associate pastor of a big church in New Orleans, and when churches in the southeastern part of Louisiana needed someone to fill a pulpit, a lot of times they would just call our church because they knew that they had a bunch of guys that were gifted to preach, and a lot of times they would call and ask for me to come and preach. And I was a young preacher, and I loved to preach, and we got, I got a call one time in the church down in the oil country of Louisiana, down by the bayou, wanted me to come preach. And I went. And that Sunday, as I sat there waiting for my turn to preach, as a young 20-something-year-old young man who thought he knew the Bible, there was a lady that came forward in the children's sermon time, and she sat down on the steps at the front, had all the kids come, and she had with her that day, she had a model of a ship, plastic model of a ship, and she also had a horse's bit. It was horse country, too, down where we were. And she had a bit for a horse. And she also had a match. And she sat there with these little kids and she said, Do you see this big ship? This big old ship is turned by this little rudder on the ship. And she says, Do you see this bit right here? This little piece of metal. You can take a thousand pound animal and turn it around with this little piece of metal. And she said, Do you see this match? You can just make one little spark with this match and you can set a whole forest ablaze. And she said, these all look real little, but they're very powerful. And she said, our tongues are the same way. Well, I sat there going, Man, that's pretty cool. So after the service was over, after I was done preaching, I went out of my way to go find this lady. And I ran up to her and I said, ma'am, let me just tell you, that was one of the best children's sermons I ever heard. And that illustration, those illustrations you used of the horse's bridle a bit and, and the ship with the rudder and, and that match, where did you get those illustrations? Those are some of the greatest illustrations I've ever heard. And she looked at me as if to say, uh, the book of James? She goes, it was in James chapter 3, preacher. <laughs> My tongue let off that I didn't know the Bible as well as I thought I did. That same day, another man walked up to me and he said, you know the Bible, huh? I said, yes, sir, I do. He said, okay, let me ask you a question. I said, all right. He goes, did Moses ever make it into the promised land? I said, of course not. He goes, yes, he did. You know, on the Mount of Transfiguration? And I was like, oh, Moses did get it into the promised land, didn't he? And those two have stuck in my head. God was showing me way back then, you don't know as much as you think you know. And my tongue showed it. My tongue showed it. Now, hopefully we know that the real problem doesn't lie in our tongues, right? 
by what, by what's behind it. But I want to kind of have a little fun here and just show you what I'm talking about. This is a common way of describing sin in Jewish writing by assigning the problem to a specific body part. Remember, James's audience is predominantly Jewish, and they've come out of Judaism into Christianity, and that's why we were looking at last time we were together about they were they went from the legalism and not having from having to keep the law to say I don't have to do anything now it's all faith, and he was having to correct that too. But because his audience is typically Jewish, he used a Jewish type of writing and a style of writing to illustrate and. Let me take you to where, what I mean. Go to Romans chapter 3. Now in Romans chapter 3, verses 13 through 15, you'll see that Paul is quoting from the Old Testament. But look at what the Old Testament says in these passages that Paul's using to show that we're sinners. In Romans 3, verses 13 through 15, he says, he says their throat, talking about how no one's righteous, not even one, their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Go to 2 Peter chapter 2. Go to 2 Peter chapter 2. Look at verse 14. In 2 Peter chapter 2 verse 14, it says, They have eyes full of adultery. Insatiable for sin, they entice unsteady souls. They have hearts trained in greed, accursed children. So now the eyes are full of adultery. Go to Proverbs chapter 6. Look at verses 16 through 19. In Proverbs 6, verses 16 through 19, it says, There are six things that the Lord hates, seven that are an abomination to him. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, and hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that make haste to run to evil, a false witness who breathes out lies, and one who sows discord among the brothers. So if we just cut off our hands and our feet and our lips and our eyes, we wouldn't sin anymore, right? No, that's not the case, is it? Because sin's not in our feet and our hands and our eyes. That's just what we use to demonstrate the sin that's already in all of us. And that's what we're going to talk about a little bit tonight that's going to help us go to where James wants us to end up at the end of chapter 3. God's Word shows us that our mouths are a vivid indicator of our sinful hearts, the sin that's in us. In Isaiah chapter 6, again, don't turn there for the sake of time, verse 5, as you know, Isaiah is taken into the throne room of God by God in a vision. And in chapter 6, verse 1, he says, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and lifted up, and the, throne of, uh, the, the, the train of his robe filled the temple. And when he spoke, the threshold shook, and I said, Woe is me! I'm a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and I've seen the Lord of glory. Was it his lips that were the problem? No. His lips aren't the problem. Go to Matthew 15. It'll, it'll show us, Jesus shows us what the real problem is. In Matthew 15, look at verses 10 and 11, and then we're going to jump to verses 15 through 20. Matthew 15, look at verses 10 and 11. And he called the people to him, this is Jesus, and he said to them, hear and understand, it is not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, but what comes out of the mouth that defiles the person. Now, jump to verse 15. Peter said to him, explain the parable to us. 
And he said, are you also still without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into the mouth passes into the stomach and is expelled? But what comes out of the mouth proceeds from where? From the heart. And this defiles a person, for out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. These are what defile a person, but to eat with unwashed hands doesn't defile anyone. Go to, go to Luke chapter 6. Look at verses 43 through 45. Jesus explains it here even more. And Luke chapter 6, verses 43 through 45. He says, for no good tree bears bad fruit, nor again does a bad tree bear good fruit. For each tree is known by its own fruit. For figs are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor are grapes picked from a bramble bush. The good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good, and the evil person out of the evil treasure produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, his mouth speaks. That's why James is saying... That even though it's our tongue that reveals our sinfulness and our tongue's a small thing, don't think that your sin problem is a small one. <laughs> okay, I got, a, I got a little tongue problem. No. What did he go on and say at the end of what section we just read in verse 6? The tongue is a fire and it's set on fire by what? By hell. Now, we got to let this sink in for a minute because a lot of people think, well, the devil made me do it. No, we've already seen in the book of James. When someone's tempted, don't say God's tempting me because God doesn't tempt anyone, nor is he tempted by evil. But each one is enticed when it's by his own sinful desire. It's within all of us. Folks, because of sin being passed on to us and we're born with it. That's why David in Psalm 51 says, in sin did my mother conceive me. He wasn't saying that, that David's mother in the act of conceiving him was sinning. No, he was in sin from the moment he was conceived. It's in all of us. You, you, those of you that have raised children, you didn't have to teach them how to lie. You didn't have to teach them how to steal, hide things from other people. You didn't have to teach them how to bite it's in all of us. But the problem is deep. You want to know how serious the problem is? Go to Matthew 25, verse 41. In Matthew 25, verse 41, at the end of the tribulation period, as Jesus separates the humans that survived the tribulation period as to who enters the kingdom and who doesn't, look at what he says in verse 41. Then he will say to those on his left, the goats, Depart from me, you cursed into the eternal fire, prepared for who? Prepared for the devil and his angels. That's why he says that the, the sin problem that's being revealed by our tongue is set on fire by hell. This problem that we have within us that our tongue reveals is so serious that God had to prepare a place of eternal judgment for all who had it. Oh, it wasn't created for us. It was created for who? For Satan and his, and his angels, Satan and his demons. Oh, but the moment that Satan came to the earth and tempted Adam and Eve to disobey God and to listen to him, they became followers of Satan. And that's why Jesus told people, your father's the devil. 
Oh, but by faith in Jesus, the second Adam, we can be born again to a new life where God becomes our father. We were dead in our, our, our spirit, separated from God. But he's made us alive through faith in Jesus Christ. And now we have a new nature, which we're going to get into in a little bit. But you've got to keep in mind this sin problem that's within all of us that our tongue reveals is a serious, serious problem. I don't want you to ever fall prey to the lie that the enemy tries to do today where he's convincing people that, okay, I'm going to first try to convince you you're not a sinner because there's really no such thing as sin. But if I can't do that, I'll just try to convince you that the sin you're doing is not that big of a deal. You ever heard of a little white lie? We try to make levels of sin. And James says, let me read it to you again. James chapter 3. We'll start in verse 6. And the tongue is a fire a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our body parts, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and it is set on fire by hell. Now, he now then in verses 7 and 8, though, goes a little bit deeper. And this is what is going to be very helpful for us, hopefully. Some of you might not understand or haven't really seen what we're going to look at tonight, and I want you to see it. James make a statement, makes a statement here in verses 7 and 8 about our tongues that we all need to fully grasp. He says, For every kind of beast and bird of reptile and sea creature can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind, but no human being can tame the tongue. It's a restless evil full of deadly poison. If you think I'm going to get my tongue under control. Good luck. The Bible says you can't and you never will be able to. Remember our lesson we had a few weeks ago earlier in the book of James about being slow to speak and quick to listen. And we looked at the importance of maybe not talking. What if you were struck mute? Would your sin problem go away? No, because it's not in your tongue. You can't fix it by being quiet. It'll keep you from doing damage to others, but the sin problem's still there. And so there's something here about what he says that we need to understand that is clarified in the Old Testament. But I'm going to read it to you again. No human being can tame the tongue. Go to Jeremiah chapter 17. Because we've already seen the problem's not our tongue, it's, it's our what? It's our heart. Well, let's go back to Jeremiah chapter 17, verse 9. Jeremiah 17, verse 9 and 10. In Jeremiah 17, verse 9, it says, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? By the NIV puts it in a wonderful way, beyond cure. The heart is so sick, it's beyond cure. And then in verse 10, I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his deeds. I shared with some of the people that were here before uh, our Bible study started and before we started the recording that I had something pretty cool happen this weekend. Um, 
I was asked last minute by our pastor at First Baptist Merritt Island, he texted me on Thursday afternoon and said, is there any way you could preach this Sunday? And it was a Sunday they had available. And I said, sure, I'd, I'd be glad to. And I started running through my mind of, okay, I'm going to be standing in front of 1,500 people on Sunday morning. What am I going to preach? It's Thursday. So I asked him, I said, do you want me to preach something in particular? Do you want me to just do whatever? He said, well, you have a choice. He said, you can preach whatever you want. He said, or you could just pick up where we're supposed to be in our series in the Gospel of Mark. Our pastors have been going through the Gospel of Mark. And I said, what's the passage that we're going to be studying? And he said, it's Mark chapter 2, verses 13 through 17. That's where Jesus calls Matthew, the tax collector, from his tax booth and says, follow me. And Matthew does. But then Matthew throws a party for all of his tax collector friends so they can meet Jesus. And of course, Jesus goes and eats with them, and the Pharisees see that he's doing this, and the Pharisees say, if this man really prophet, he'd know, what's he doing eating with sinners? And Jesus makes a very interesting statement. He says, the people that are healthy don't need a doctor. It's only the sick ones that need a doctor. And he says, I haven't come to call the righteous people. I've came to call sinners to repentance. Well, here's where it gets good. This was April 27th. 2023. I just finished looking at the passage that Titus said was the next one, and, pray, and I'm praying about whether or not I'm supposed to take that one or preach something else, and my phone gets another text, this time from my daughter, sent to our whole family, and she texts this. She said, today is the six-year anniversary of when we found out that dad had cancer. And then she wrote, thank you, God, for healing my daddy. And it hit me. Not only is this, was that day the six-year anniversary when I found out we had cancer. That's the day the doctor sat me and Becky down in the office and said those words, you have cancer. It then hit me that six years ago, on April 30th, which was the Sunday I preached, I preached at First Baptist Merritt Island because on that exact same Thursday six years ago, Titus, our pastor, heard that I had just been diagnosed with cancer because word spread fast. He contacted me and said, you're preaching Sunday. Three days from now. And I said, on what? He said, you're preaching on cancer and faith. And some of you might remember this message. It became one of the most viral messages that I've ever preached that God used where I preached six years ago to the day on April 30th, 2017. I preached everything's right on schedule. The doctors say I have less than two years to live, but nothing's changed. My faith is the same. And then God showed me what he was doing. Titus didn't know it. I didn't know it. But God had orchestrated it that I was going to be preaching in that exact same sanctuary six years later to the very day and preaching on a passage that only those who acknowledge they're sick can get help. And I shared with them after I preached the passage as my conclusion what was so special about that day. But I also took them back to the real story behind the story of the fact that, yes, it was April 27th, 2017, that, that I was told that I had cancer. But the story started back on January 18th of 2017, because that's the day I remember the pain started. But being a guy and being typical, it'll go away. I didn't even tell my wife or any of my kids. It, it's no big deal. But the pains kept getting worse and worse and worse. And as much as I tried to ignore it, it got more and more noticeable that I had a problem until 
I was now throwing up in the parking lot at Walt Disney World with my family, and I really finally said, I need to see a doctor. I didn't seek help until I acknowledged my problem. I want to talk to you tonight. I know I'm speaking to mostly people here that are all believers. But that sin that so easily besets us is still there. We've been set free from its power. We can say no and yield ourselves to Jesus, which we're going to talk about a little bit tonight. But don't ever lose sight of how serious the problem is. And if you're here tonight or you're listening to this recording and you don't think your problem's bad, I'm a pretty good person. I've got a little bit of sin, but it's not that big of a deal. No, no, no. Listen to what the scripture says. The heart, which is the real problem, is beyond cure. It's desperately sick and beyond cure. And God says, I'm going to search the heart. And if everyone's heart is beyond cure, what do we need? We need what? Oh, no, no. We need Jesus, but what do we need? A new heart. If the heart we have is beyond cure, you can't fix it with some medicine. You need a heart transplant. Oh, but I got good news. Go to Ezekiel 36. Ezekiel 36, look at verses 26 and 27. This is in the midst of this passage where God's making a promise to the nation of Israel how at the end of the tribulation period, he's going to be doing this for the nation. But don't forget, all the promises for Israel are ours now in Jesus Christ. He's actually giving us as Gentiles in the church age the things that he's promised Israel. He's given them to us now so that we'll make Israel jealous. But look at Ezekiel 36, 26 and 27. He says, and I'm going to give you a new heart. And a new spirit I'll put within you and I'll remove the heart of stone from your flesh and I will give you a heart of flesh and I'll put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Now, don't miss this. We read this and we think that when God does this for Israel, where he gives them a new heart and puts his spirit within them and he moves them to follow his decrees, that they're just going to walk around like robots and do whatever God says. No, they're still going to have to do it by faith. They're not going to be automatons that just do whatever God says when they don't have a choice. But he's going to cause them because hopefully you understand, and it will be for the nation of Israel at that time as well, that if you and I do anything good, who did it? He does it. He does it. He's the one causing us to do it. But he has promised that he will. Now, this is where we're going to take stuff you know and take it a little bit deeper. Listen, listen to me again. We're going to take stuff you already know, but we're going to take it a little bit deeper. And, and the reason I know this is because he's doing this with me as well. Go to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. We're going to look at verses 11 through 17. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Paul says this, talking to believers, knowing therefore the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. And what we are is known to God, and I hope it's known also to your conscience. We're not commending ourselves to you again, but giving you cause to boast about us so that you may be able to answer those who boast about outward appearance, not about what's in the heart. For if we're beside ourselves, if we're out of our mind, it's for God. If we're in our right mind, it's for you. For the love of Christ controls us. Do you see it? 
For the love of Christ, some of your translations say compels us. Because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. Now from now on, therefore, we don't regard anyone according to the flesh, even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh. We regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Now we're going to stop here and we're going to let the scripture speak to us a little bit here. Paul was dealing with the fact that there were some who were questioning his apostleship and the people that were traveling with him and what their motives were. And he says to him, look, he says, we're not trying to commend ourselves to you again, but we're hoping that what we really are is known to your consciences. We want you to understand that our ministry is from a pure motive. We're not out for money. We're not out for any of that stuff. We want you to know Jesus. And he says, God knows what's in our hearts. And he says, we are so trusting in God as we do what he's asked us to do, that if what we share with you makes no sense and you, you think we're nuts, that's for God. We just did it to him and we leave that to him. If what we share with you makes sense, God's opened your eyes, not us. And then he makes a very interesting statement. He says, the love of Christ compels us, controls us. We believe that he died for everyone. Therefore, if he died for everyone, everyone's dead. Do you understand? Everyone has died. He says, but we don't look at anyone now according to the flesh. We used to look at Jesus that way, but we don't do that anymore. What does he mean by that? That'll help you understand what he's just said in the previous verse. When he said, we used to look at Jesus just according to the flesh, but we don't do that anymore. What do you think he means? I'm sorry? A mere man. We thought he was just a man. That's why when the disciples were in the boat with Jesus and the storm was there, they say, Jesus, don't you care if we drown? Don't you care if we perish? And then he gets up and he just speaks to the wind and the waves and they were stilled and they go, who is this? Even the wind and the waves obey him. Well, what were they wanting him to do? They expected him to bail. They expected him to help bail. They weren't expecting him to just speak to the wind and the waves. And they're all of a sudden going, whoa. Another time when he walks on the water and he gets in the boat, then they go, wow, you truly are the son of God. We thought you were just a mere man. We don't do that anymore with Jesus. Why? Because we now know he's God. Right, now listen, therefore, we don't look at anybody now just according to the flesh. We're looking for, do they have the spirit of God in them or not? This is going to be important for you. This is going to be very, very important for you. Because if you don't let this truth sink in, you won't live in the power that you have. And you also will have no compassion for those that are outside of Christ. Do you find yourself sometimes sitting there watching the news and seeing what's going on in the world, getting mad at all those sinners that are out there and all those politicians that are pushing their agendas on us? Do you find yourself getting a little upset about what they're doing and how they're ruining America and all this stuff? Let me say something to you. They're doing the best they can. They're sick. They have a sin problem that's been set on fire by hell and they don't have a heart transplant and they're only doing what they can do. You should not be surprised that the world is wicked. 
but we act like they shouldn't be. You look at them as mere humans. No, they're under control of a supernatural power that hell was created for. Oh, I love the fact that as I was studying on that passage in Mark chapter 2, you know what God showed me? If you go and look at Mark's account of Matthew being called and Luke's account of Matthew being called, they point out that his name used to be Levi. Levi in Mark's account and Luke's account. Yet, just one chapter over in Mark's account, in chapter 3, when Mark lists the 12 apostles, he doesn't call him Levi, he calls him Matthew. Luke does the same thing. And actually, you can double check me, Mark and Luke never call him Levi again. They just said his name was Levi when Jesus called him. From that point on, when he became the new creation, he became by the new name of Matthew. But Matthew, when he tells his own story in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 9, he calls himself Matthew from the beginning. Why? Because when he's writing this, he sees himself as the new creation. Oh, but there's something really cool that if you look at Mark's account of the 12 apostles, he's just listed as Matthew. If you look at Luke's account of the 12 apostles, he's just listed as Matthew. But if you go to Matthew's own account of the listing of the 12 apostles, he lists himself as Matthew, the tax collector. Oh, that's pretty cool now. You got to let this sink in. He, the whole time he writes his gospel, sees himself as the new creation, but he never forgets what Jesus saved him from. Many of us Christians have forgotten how desperately sick we were. And that's why Matthew throws a party for all of his tax collector friends at his house to come meet Jesus. Because when we understand the compassion that Jesus had for us in healing us when we were sick, we'll have compassion for others who are still in that condition. Oh, by the way, on the cancer side, I have a total different understanding of when I hear now someone has cancer. I got to be honest with you, before I had cancer, I tried to understand, but I couldn't. And to be really honest with you, during a lot of those years that I have people tell me, Pastor, I just found out I have cancer, I was jealous. Not because I wanted cancer for cancer's sake, but I knew that most people that went through cancer lost weight. <laughs> and I was 300 pounds at the time, and I remember thinking, wish I could get cancer so I could lose weight without having to try. But then, of course, when God did give me cancer, I had the kind that you gained weight because of the amount of prednisone they gave you. So it was just like, Lord, what are you doing? Listen, but now when someone says they're going through cancer, because I have been there and I know how sick I was and how hard chemotherapy was and how hard radiation was, I have compassion for people who are in that situation that I used to be in. Folks, we as Christians need to be like Matthew and understand we're a new creation now. And see ourselves as that, but never, ever lose sight of the seriousness of our sickness before Jesus saved us. And don't lose sight of the fact that he's left us in these human bodies with it still for a reason. Quiz time. Why does he save us? We're a new creation. Because some of you say, wait a minute, you said I've gotten a new heart and a new spirit and I'm a new creation. How come I still struggle with sin? Anybody here don't struggle with sin anymore now that you're a Christian? James Burke. 
We're going to start the lesson all over again because of James. All right. <laughs> Listen, you all know you still struggle with it, right? How come then? How come if you've got a new heart and a new spirit and you're a new creation, how come we're still in these bodies that wrestle with sin? Why did God do it that way? Oh, it's very important that you grasp this. So that we would do what on a daily basis? Rely on him. He's left us in this broken down, old fleshly cursed body. So that we would have a daily victory by turning to him. He wants us to rely on him on a daily basis. Folks, listen to me. This is something God's teaching me because I'm still tempted just like everyone else in certain areas. When those times come, it is my opportunity to worship. We look at it as a fight against sin. No, focus your eyes on Jesus. I'm a new creation. Jesus, you said that I've got a new heart. This isn't really me. So when I am tempted to sin, and if I give in to the sin, I'm not doing it because I'm just human. No, you said I'm no longer just human. I'm no longer just according to the flesh. So when I sin now, Lord, I'm sinning against my nature. And you promised that you would give me victory as I turn to you. Your word says that if I walk in the spirit, I won't gratify the desires of the flesh. My focus, you say, Lord, is not to be focusing on the sin and trying to stop. But because that's like me trying to tame my tongue or trying to fix my heart. Lord, I'm going to look to you and the power that you say you have to give me on a daily basis to defeat sin. We want the special service where we can go forward and that special preacher can lay hands on us and we won't have this problem anymore. And Jesus said, that's not how it works. I'm going to give you daily bread. I'm going to teach you about daily walking with me and laying your body on the altar because I want you to walk with me on a daily basis. When the temptations come, you have an opportunity to worship. Lord, I choose you. I choose you. But you won't go there until you believe that greater is he who is in you than, than he who is in the world. So I'm going to ask you a question. How many of you, show of hands, know that if you died right now, you would go immediately into the presence of God because of your faith in Jesus? All right, put your hands down. How do you know that? Because he said so, right? You, because he said so. And you took him at his word. And when you take him at his word, you've experienced his, Romans chapter 8, verse 16, his spirit testifies with our spirit that we're his children. You know so because he said so. You take him at his word. Hopefully you don't sit around going, man, I, I hope I'm saved today. But very few Christians have gone beyond that level of faith to actually becoming men and women who believe all of the promises of God and act on them like those are just as true as their eternal security. Do you understand what I'm saying? Has he promised to give life to your mortal body? Go to Romans chapter 8. Let me give you a couple promises here. Go to Romans chapter 8. By the way, you guys are getting a whole new study that Tuesday night didn't get. So, But this is what James... What's that? Thank you, James. He took it. Yeah. <laughs> James's sin has finally paid off. All right. Go to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. Look at verse 9. You, however, are not in the flesh, 
But in the spirit, if, if in fact the spirit of God dwells in you and anyone who doesn't have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body's still dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. And he's talking about right here and now. So then, brothers, we are debtors. Not to the flesh to live according to the flesh, because if you live according to the flesh, you're going to die. But if by the spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live for all who are led by the spirit of God are the sons of God. Now, you didn't receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you receive the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. And the spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we're his children. All right. Listen closely. He said that if you are in Christ, you're no longer in the flesh. You're a new creation. You've got to let that truth sink into your heart just as well as the fact that you believe that if you died today, you'd go to heaven. It's the same God that made the same promise. But you've got to realize this problem that we still have. Remember Romans 7, Paul said, the things I want to do, I don't. Things I don't want to do, I do. Who will save me from this body of death? What's the next part? Thanks be to God who gives us the victory through Jesus Christ. So James is now saying to his hearers, look, your tongue should be showing you what's really going on in your heart. Now, go back to James chapter 3 and look at what he says in verses 10 through 12. And then we're going to close in the time we have left in verses 13 through 18. And verses 10, from the same mouth come blessing and cursing my brothers, writing to believers or unbelievers. Believers, from the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. Does a spring pour forth from the same opening both fresh and salt water? Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. Keep reading. We're going to move into now. And what he does next now is this. In the next set of verses, James continues his teaching on how to examine if we're living out of the flesh or out of our spirit. And he talks about that here in verses 10 through 12. And then he goes and he says this in James 3, 13 through 18. He says, who is wise and who is understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts... Do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but it's earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there'll be disorder and every vile practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason. Husbands, listen. Full of mercy and good fruits, impartial, sincere, and a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. As you're about to see as we get into chapter four in two weeks, remember, no Bible study next week. When we come to chapter four, he's going to chastise them. He's going to say, you think you're walking with God, but you're not. Or you might be regular in church and you even might be leadership. But you're actually more interested in the things of the world than the things of God. And actually, you're going to need to grieve and mourn. So God will be allowed to do his work in your hearts. He's a, he says to them, listen, do you want to know what real wisdom looks like? Meekness. 
As I was studying on this passage, I found a great definition of meekness. Some of you probably heard it before. But meekness is not weakness. Meekness is strength under control. Meekness is strength under control. If you think you have to get the upper hand in the situation to show that you're in control, that's not meekness and it's not wisdom. Oh, that's the wisdom of man. He with the most guns wins. Listen, who is the most powerful person who's ever walked this earth? Jesus. All right. I give you an easy one. That was a softball. All right. That was a beach ball. But in John chapter 18, as they come to arrest him, they, he said, who are you looking for? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. And he says two words in our Bibles. It says, I am he. But it, actually what he said was, I am. And when he said, I am, do you know what the Bible says happened to all the people come to arrest him? They all fell backwards, fell on their backs. So did he have enough power and authority to keep them from doing it? Oh, yeah, he had a lot of strength, but he showed meekness. Why? Why did he, with that kind of power, let them arrest him? Why, when they were mocking him and saying, who hit you, Christ? When he knew full well, and he could have told them their mother's name and father's name and the birth date and how many hairs were on their head and the day they were going to die. How come he just took it silently? Obedience. He yielded wisdom, biblical wisdom. He was yielded to the father and who the father is and what he's promised. And he only was going to do something if the father told him to do it and only in the father's power. And until then, he wasn't going to act. That's meekness. Yet how many times have we fallen prey over the last year or so to say, something has to be done. We can't let them do this. We've got to get a group together. We've got to act. That sounds like wisdom, but it's not. Actually, James says, uh, if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, don't boast and be false to the truth. This isn't the wisdom that comes down from above, but it's earthly, unspiritual. There is again, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there's going to be disorder and every vile practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And the harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Let's follow Jesus a little bit further. Remember this one that had the authority to do whatever he wanted, but he yielded that? He's now standing before Pilate. And Pilate comes looking for a little help. From Jesus, actually. That's what he's doing when he says what I'm about to share with you. In John 19, he says, don't you realize that I have the authority to have you put to death or to have you released? And Jesus looks at him calmly and says, you would have no authority over me unless it was given to you by my father. So in the situation that you're in, and I know you're in one. Because I am and we all are, and it's a part of how God made this life. He's left us in this world of tribulation to take heart that in the world we'll have tribulation, but in who will I have peace? 
in him we'll have peace. He's designed it all that we would turn to him. When our financial situation gets kind of out of control, we quickly start thinking about yard sales and maybe I need to take a part-time job or maybe I need to get a loan. Or, and we, we start looking at the human solution, don't we? Instead of stopping and saying, Father, you have made promises that you would meet all of my needs. That if I would trust you and be generous, that you would supply and you would take care of me. Why am I looking to man's ways to fix this? I'm turning to you. Show me what you would have me do. In whatever situation you're in, first stop and let the Spirit of God show you what would have you do. And say, Lord, my eyes are on you. Oh, by the way, then you'll be living out of your new heart and your new spirit. And guess what? I guarantee if you walk like that on a daily basis, you'll keep the law. You don't even have to focus on not sinning. I spent too much of my Christian life trying to stop sinning. Jesus said, I already took care of that. You just now have to look to me. And I want to encourage you as we head into chapter four in a couple weeks, allow God to start speaking to you to prepare your heart for where we're going to go because he's going to say some things like this. Grieve, mourn, wail. By the way, we don't hear that kind of preaching. Ron, you asked earlier how you could pray for me. I, I think God's shown me how you can pray for me. And I want you all to join in it if, you, if the Lord brings it to your mind. Pray for a spirit of brokenness and humility and repentance where I'm going this next week. Because these messages to the seven churches in Revelation are full of the word repent or else. And I'm going to tell you ahead of time, God's already made clear to me, I'm not to preach to that church that I'm going to. I'm to preach to the individuals that are there for a lot of reasons. One, the more you look at the book of Revelation and the message to the churches, the more you'll realize it wasn't really written to those churches because it was written to all the churches. It was to be read to all the churches. So it wasn't as much specifically to that church, although there were some things in each church. But on top of it, throughout the Bible, throughout, sorry, throughout the, the letters to the seven churches, he says things like this, to the messenger of the church, to the preacher too. Oh, he who has an ear to hear, let him hear with the Spirit. He didn't say all y'all. He said he who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says. If anyone will open the door, I'll come in and knock. And instead of us, if I preached, say you all were a member of one big church, and, and I was here preaching to your church and a let, from the, one of the letters from Jesus to the churches in Revelation, you would sit there thinking about how this applies to your church. Did you catch where my fingers were all pointing? Anywhere but here. God's made very clear that I'm to speak specifically to the individuals and ask the Spirit of God to speak to the individuals. And I pray that at the end of each message, that there would be an honest response of repentance, which Jim Johnson needs, which we all need. That's what it means to lay our body on the altar. You remember two weeks ago we were talking about how I just need prayer. James, you and I talked about that because I just was just, I don't know what it is. Didn't have any joy. I went on that cruise. I'm going to tell you because I want to thank you for praying for me, but I'm going to tell everybody. Do you know what God showed me while I was on the cruise over the last two weeks? The short version is this. I know the truth. 
I preach the truth, but I don't live the truth. I wouldn't do anything sinning in the sense of sexual immorality or any of that kind of stuff. You know what I was doing? I was trying to live the Christian life in my own power. I was worrying about problems, trying to come up with solutions. All these things that were on my plate, I was coming up with, what have I got to do next? And what have I got to do next? And the Lord showed me that even though I was doing all the right things, I had left my first love. I had the appearance of being alive, but I was walking around in my own strength, which is deadness. And I started to feel dead. Oh, he showed me this because he loves me. I pray that by the time we come back in two weeks, we'll have had a time to let the truth of chapter four sink into our hearts. A friendship with the world is enmity toward God. Let him show you what that means. I love you. We'll see you in two weeks. Thanks for coming.